Okay, our second paper is um, by Sasha Dovshrik, um, who is completing her PhD at Birkbeck um, on the uh, Beardsley's Afterlife in Russia, 1899 to 1929. Um, she co-organised the Forgotten Geographies Conference, if some of you remember that, if you went to that, um, a couple of years ago with Larry Barrera Madrano, and she's of course your host and uh, organiser of today. So thank you very much. And the title of your paper is Beardsley's Russian Afterlives Representing Sins and Queering Desire. Thank you, Jane. Um, I would like probably to start with a small disclaimer. Uh, as far as we are marking 120 years since Beardsley's death, I thought it would be a somber but appropriate topic to talk about the myths surrounding Beardsley's death in Russia. So, to start with a quote, no artist of our time, none certainly whose work has been in black and white, has reached a, a more universal or a more contested fame, wrote the symbolist poet Arthur Simmons in Beardsley's obituary in 1898. <coughs> of the many histories of the artist's international reception, one story remains untold, Beardsley's afterlife in Russia where he was turned into a cultural icon. After briefly outlining the scope of the Russian Beardsley craze, I will discuss two myths produced by it. Uh, repentant sins and queering desire, which is Beardsley as a repentant sinner and Beardsley as a homoerotic symbol. In the mid-1890s, his work drew attention of Sergei Diaghilev and his friends from the aesthetic group World of Art, who started reproducing Beardsley's designs in their mouthpiece periodical which you can see here. Um, his laconic black and white technique was further popularized by burgeoning modernist publications such as the St. Petersburg journal Apollon and adopted by their designers, for example, Leon Buxt. Not only was Beardsley proclaimed the master of thoughts by the Balearus designers, he was perhaps more surprisingly championed as the first futurist by the incipient avant-garde. And furthermore, the widely satirized Beardsley woman of the British Yellow 90s reappeared in the Russian satirical press of the 1910s. And here you can compare these two fashionable ladies, which were uh, satirized in Punch and in Novi Satirikon in Russia. Uh, as for male fashion, the circulation of Beardsley's portraits in print popularized a hairstyle a la Beardsley. <laughs> Among the dandies of St. Petersburg and Moscow, such as these two famous or symbolist poets, Nikolai Gumilov and uh, Georgi Ivanov. And yet, there was always a strong religious undercurrent through the reception of Beardsley among Russian intellectuals at the beginning of the century. As the art historian Alexei Sidorov noted in his 1917th monograph on the artist, quote, his conversion to Catholicism is undoubtedly the most hotly debated fact of Beardsley's biography. How and why did the Russian admirers come to treat religiosity as the cornerstone of Beardsley's art and persona? To tackle this question, it is necessary to briefly comment on the so-called Russian spiritual renaissance of the turn of the century and its specific utopian twist. During the decades of political stagnation and military defeats preceding the revolution of 1917, the idea of a radical transformation of human nature reverberated through Russian modernist poetry, theology, and political thought. One of the intellectual sources for this transcendental fascination was found in Nietzsche. Immensely popular at the turn of the century, he was reinvented by Russian intellectuals as a religious thinker. 
his metaphorical teachings on the Übermensch were taken as a practical guidance towards an achievable goal. Thus, philosopher Vladimir Solovyov maintained that the Übermensch had a historical precedence in Christ. In the 20th century, the ordinary man was to be surpassed once again. This could only be achieved by what the philosopher Nikolai Berdyaev called an inner spiritual revolution. Beardsley so perceived deathbed, deathbed conversion to Catholicism provided a pure example of such heroic spiritual feat. Yet another root of the redemptive emphasis in the Russian reading of Beardsley can be found in the narrative structures of the 19th century Russian novel with its emphasis on the characters' remaking of their own essence. This narrative draws upon the myth of a sinner who reaches the depths of corruption, goes through a moral crisis, and reemerges as a saint. Literary scholar Evgeny Bernstein has compellingly argued that this model underlined the Russian view of Oscar Wilde as a Christ-like figure. The story of Beardsley's notorious career, redemptive suffering from consumption, and ultimate deathbed repentance similarly proved similarly adaptable to the discursive resources of Russian culture. To illustrate how this model informed Russian uh, critical writing on Beardsley, I suggest looking at the monograph by Alexei Sidorov, published in 1917. The stages of Beardsley's spiritual transformation are encapsulated in Sidorov's commentary on the drawing Sentimental Education of 1894, in which he traces the evolution of Beardsley women from the embodiments of corruption to emblems of saintliness. Quote, it is very interesting to trace how this type changes in Beardsley's work. At first, it is innocent and fleshless. Joan of Arc, Hail Mary. Starting with Le Mode d'Atour, something evil attaches itself to the type. The thin face of the girl in sentimental education already bears all the seven seals of corruption. Beardsley was saved by his talent. The heavy hand of illness led him onto a different path. The blamelessly charming ladies of the Rape of the Lock uh, about whom Beardsley was dreaming on his deathbed, have already nothing deliberately evil about them. Thus, Beardsley's early works depict as Cedar of claims chaste women venerated in the Christian tradition. Later, something evil enters the imagery, and significantly, it is Beardsley's disease that triggers spiritual purification. In the words of Sidorov, the heavy hand of illness led him onto a different path. Tuberculosis and, this, uh, and the physical suffering it entailed are seen as a necessary step towards ultimate salvation. In Illness as Metaphor, Susan Zontag traces the idea that people are made conscious as they confront their deaths to the romantic's fascination with the images of young consumptives. Since the early 19th century, tuberculosis was mostly perceived as a disease of lungs. It symbolized an edifying illness of the upper spiritualized body. In the history of ugliness, Umberto Eco notes that consumption was often styled as a disease bestowing an ethereal look on the body. <coughs> By way of illustration, Eco quotes the German philosopher Karl Rosenkranz, quote, what a truly luminous sight is offered by a young girl or young man on their deathbed, victims of tuberculosis. Um, the notion of the sufferer's consumed soul made physically visible due to, due to the emaciation of the flesh was a catching trend in Russian critical writing on Beardsley. And arguably, Sidorov's monograph uh, supplied some of the most compelling examples. Uh, for instance, uh, the remark on Beardsley's self-portrait of 1892, which Joseph has already shown us, 
constructs the morbid yet beautiful image of the consumptive. The common symptoms of tuberculosis, such as profuse sweating, malodorous breath, were undoubtedly familiar to Sidra and his readership in the late 19th century St. Petersburg, for instance, consumptive death rates even surpassed those of typhus, the capital's traditional disease. Nevertheless, Sidorov's account of Beasley's suffering presents an aestheticized image in which biographical key points are already discernible behind the 20-year-old artist's physical appearance. Quote, this is an almost tragic, doomed face with an intent gaze of light-colored eyes with hollow cheeks, which make one already foresee the future illness. This self-portrait most firmly determines our perception of the young artist. Moving to the motives of Paul Beardsley's conversion, Sidorov again highlights tuberculosis with its combination of the accelerated experience of time and prescribed monastic seclusion. Quote, in all likelihood, had Beardsley been healthy, he would not have made this step so decisively and quickly. However, the explanation for this lies not only in that Beardsley's will was enfeebled by consumption. His secluded life during the years of 1896-1897 must have directed him towards a higher intensity of spiritual life. As, again, Zontag points out, from the early 19th century, tuberculosis became a new reason for exile. The tubercular patient, an exemplary dropout, a wanderer in endless search for, of, the healthy, of the healthy place. In the study of consumption social history in America, Shayla Rothman also notes that the 19th century sufferers, for whom the interminable search of healthier climates became a medically prescribed mode of life, often found solace in casting spiritual light on their travels, fusing the Christian quest for the celestial city with their own search for renewed health and spiritual redemption. Besides the Bible, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress was among the literary works which the consumptives took on their journeys. Significantly, Beardsley's contemporaries considered him ideally suited for illustrating Bunyan's book. As Beardsley mentions in a letter to his patron, Andrei Rafalovich, quote, a certain publisher has been begging me to illustrate Pilgrim's Progress for him. He says that my lately acquired knowledge of suffering has fitted me perfectly for the task. This letter was published in the Russian edition of Beardsley's Literary Remains. Uh, it contains two poems and obviously Under the Hill and also the essays by Ross and Arthur Simmons. From the clues and correspondence, Sidorov reconstructs the progression of the artist towards ultimate redemption mapping uh, Beardsley's inner metamorphosis which parallels his physical decline. As a bibliophile, Sidorov pays special attention to Beardsley's selection of books and the transformation of his reading habits. According to the critic, uh, when he lost his ability to work and the menacing sign of poverty appeared before him, the artist instructed Smithers to sell his library. Notably, all but religious texts could go on sale. The only books Beatsley insisted on keeping were spiritual poems by John Gray, Catholic priest, as Sidorov does not fail to specify, and two French volumes of the lives of the saints. Instead of those, continues Sidorov, with an emphasis, three volumes of Rabelais were to be sold uh, with the necessity arrive. By underlining the word instead, the scholar stresses Beatsley's symbolic renunciation of the flesh, associated with Rabelais' exaggerated corporality, for the sake of the soul, epitomized 
by the preference for the hagiographic accounts and Gray's Catholic poetry. In the end, Sidorov presented Beardsley's famous deathbed letter to Leonard Smithers as, quote, um, a terrible and pathetic scream which bears testimony to one of the last fits when all the ghosts of his past life rose before the dying man. The note to Smithers, which was sent on the 7th of March, 10 days before Beardsley's death, had a profound resonance in the Russian reception of the artist. Its facsimile reproduction, featured in the Beardsley collection of 1912, which I have mentioned above, uh, headed with the inscription, Jesus is our Lord and Judge, the letter read, quote, I implore you to destroy all copies of Lysistrata and bad drawings, by all that is holy, all obscene drawings, obviously in my death agony. The unsteady handwriting in the facsimile vis uh, visualized the redemptive climax of the artist's spiritual journey. For another king Russian commentator on Beasley's religious crisis, Abram Ephros, the letter symbolized an inner spiritual fit which could absolve Beasley before God. This verdict complied with the goal set by the Russian post-Nietzschean thinkers which I have discussed at the beginning. The bestial man had to be surmounted and human nature transformed by the internal spiritual revolution. To complete this image of the repentant sinner, Sidorov borrowed the formula from author Simon's obituary. Anima naturaliter, Pagana, Beardsley died as a faithful son of the Catholic Church. The transgressive eroticism of Beardsley's pagan nature was juxtaposed with the notion of his martyrdom and salvation. Uh, the myth of Beardsley as a Christian sufferer was not exclusive in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century. As promised, I will now look at how the quasi-religious illusions operated in the construction of Beardsley as a homoerotic symbol by a major Russian modernist, Mikhail Kuzmin. <coughs> Poet and fiction writer, composer and playwright, he is also known as the seminal voice of the emerging homosexual subculture and the author of the first gay novel openly published in Europe, The Wings. In addition, Kuzmin was the translator of Beardsley's poems the Three Musicians and the Ballad of a, of, of a Barber, which were published in the same Beardsley Miscellany. Kuzmin incorporated his enduring fascination with Beardsley into his literary corpus and everyday practices. What I would like to focus on is the centrality of Beardsley to the literary image of his partner, Yuri Yurkun. At the time of their meeting in 1913, Yurkun was 17 years old. They maintained a lifelong relationship up until Kuzmin's death in 1936. In accordance with the Hellenic teacher and disciple model, Kuzmin acted as a patron for his younger lover and helped to build up his literary profile. However, the surviving works by Yurkun amount to no more than a handful of early texts. With the growth of, with the growth of repression in the Soviet state, both authors were gradually driven out of literature. The regime's impact on Yurkun, life and legacy was fatal. In 1938, an KVD arrested him as a member of a counter-revolutionary group of Leningrad writers. After six months in prison, he was executed by shooting. His literary archive and collection of drawings were confiscated and for the most part, for the most part lost. Indeed, until recently, Yurkun was chiefly remembered as a devotee of Kuzmin's numerous poems. 
returning to their life together. It is described in detail in Kuzmin's diary, a personal journal of unquestionable cultural significance. It was kept over 30 years and often read publicly. As we learn from the diary, Bersley was one of the couple's favorite artists, and besides, Yurkun somehow resembled him. A rewarding example of Yurkun's comparison to Beardsley is, cont is contained in the entry titled Yurechka. This stylized and ephemeral vignette reads like a summary of their shared life, which strove for an aesthetic unity under the most unfavorable circumstances. Quote, Yurechka is sometimes very beautiful. However, he has acquired something new, a slowness and refinement of movements, an intentional sweetness of certain intonations and smiles. His very thing plays snooker beautifully, knows how to deal with children. One can imagine him in a semi-clerical dress. A Jesuit? Maybe. Slimmer when he lies rather than stands. When he was sleeping in a new nightgown, so young, he resembled Wesley's Christ or Aubrey himself. Kuzmin's enigmatic mention of the Beardsley Christ is in accord with the religious vein of the Russian reception. However, while mainstream critics such as Sidorov elaborate on the mythologies of Beardsley's sin and salvation through suffering, Kuzmin's Catholic illusions are incorporated in essential description of his lover. The indication of Yurkun's sweet mannerisms hints at the camp flair and effeminacy which were adopted as a mark of distinction within the urban homosexual circles. Yurkun's portrayal is unmistakably eroticized through the evocation of him in bed and the fantasy of a semi-clerical dress. Summoning powerful historical associations between Catholicism and homoeroticism, Kuzmin's vignette does not involve the component of shame. Engaging with the theme of baseless conversion, Kuzmin nevertheless turns it into the, into the tableau of seduction, by aesthetics, ritual, vestimentary code, and sensuality of the Roman church. It is the slim and beautifully clad body of his youthful lover in sleep, motionless as a statue of a saint, which invokes the association with Beatrice Christ. In his lasting preoccupation with artists, Kuzmin celebrates the erotic and theatrical aspects of Beatrice's art and persona. <coughs> These qualities resonate with Kuzmin's own radical project, to live openly in an aesthetically organized homosexual union, interlacing the reality of the 1930s Leningrad with the intentional sweetness of the Beardsley period. Thank you.